are listening to KHOL. This is Jackson Unpacked, our weekly podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. I'm news director Kyle Mackey. Coming up on today's show, record killings of Yellowstone wolves have damaged an internationally celebrated research project. Their whole intent trickles down from the Organic Act, the legislation that created the National Park Service is to have natural processes um, rule the day. Plus, author Heather Hansman weighs in on the future of ski towns. The issues are so aggravated because your wealth disparity and like the base wage and what people can actually make in these towns is so skewed that people who can come in from the outside don't have to necessarily play within that system. But first, Jackson's policies governing short-term vacation rentals are up for discussion as town officials weigh a slight rule change to current requirements for property owners looking to list their homes on sites like Airbnb. KHOL's Will Walkie reports on how the conversation is exposing a long-standing community debate. Who counts as a local in Teton County? There are more than 1,500 short-term rentals in Jackson, Wilson, and Teton Village as of April 1st, according to the analytics website AirDNA. That's a 30% increase in just one year, and most of those listings are perfectly legal. Tyler Sinclair is Community Development Director for the Town of Jackson. He says the majority of properties listed on sites like Airbnb and Verbo are located where they're supposed to be, in zones designated as tourist areas. You know, we're trying to create a visitor experience inside what we call our lodging overlay and really focus on tourists and amenities and the ability to walk. In Jackson, the overlay includes the immediate area surrounding the town square and Snow King Resort. But if you log into Airbnb and look for availability this summer, plenty of the listings are outside of those zones. So what gives? Sinclair says he gets a lot of complaints from neighbors about situations like this. Most times the calls are maybe misunderstanding what is currently allowed and not allowed and thinking that something illegal is going on when it may not be. That's because there's an exception to the overlays. Any homeowner in Jackson is allowed to list their property, no matter where it's located, up to 12 times per year. But there's a catch. It can only be rented once within a 30-day period and not occupied by anyone else after that. But that might be changing this summer. I, I say let's get this meeting started. I want to welcome everyone. To At a public meeting on April 20th, town staff proposed changing requirements so that properties can be rented out just once in 90 days. That change would mean someone in, say, East Jackson could only put their place on Verbo four times a year instead of 12. Sinclair says the goal is to try and dampen the short-term market in neighborhoods, preserving areas as working class where that distinction is fast eroding. And that's just a changing circumstance for a variety of different reasons. So I think it's important to check back in on that and consider moving it to 90, which is what I've recommended to address some of those, those instances of how residential properties are being rented. As with most housing-related proposals in Jackson, the recommendation is leading to a lot of passionate comments, both in favor of and against the move. Some property managers aren't exactly supportive, saying it makes it more difficult to earn money because they can't sell to visitors as often. Several homeowners also say their location just doesn't compute with renting to the local workforce. A change like this, they say, could uproot their retirement plans. It seems like you're penalizing us. We don't break the rules. We contribute to the economy. 
We spend our money in the restaurants, we ski, we um, rent snowmobiles, uh, we go to the hot spring. We live here. We're vested. We're not cold-hearted. We're not the big bad monsters that we're made out to be in uh, social media. And uh, we want to be a part of that solution. Fifteen people spoke against the proposal at the meeting. Joseph Pack spent summers and winters in Jackson and says he fell in love with it here when he first started visiting. He says he thinks a lot of folks search for homes like his because hotels are too expensive. And we effectively try to rent out the house to recoup um, as much of our $12,000 a month mortgage payment as we can for the, for the other months that we are not in town. Another nine people, many of whom are local workers, spoke up in favor of the policy shift. Ariel Kazunas is a renter who says she's moved six times in the past eight years. I recognize that some of the speakers tonight have, you know, talked about how they impact this economy. They go shopping. They bring folks here to go snowmobiling. That feels a bit trivial in the face of the houselessness that a lot of us are struggling with. Even town officials admit it's a pretty minor update that will have minimal impact on the housing crisis. But they say it could make some difference in existing neighborhoods. For other housing advocates who spoke up, this debate is all about what the Jackson Hole community values. I feel that this is not a matter of violations or creating workforce housing. It's a matter of keeping short-term rentals in the short-term zones where they belong. Um, I can hear suitcases rattling across the parking lot. It, it, it just is like I don't have a community and I don't have a neighborhood. This isn't an emotional thing is what somebody said. But it inherently is because it's about empathy and empathy for our community members and empathy for our true neighbors. The Town Planning Commission will continue this conversation in mid-May. In the meantime, public comments are still being accepted. Will Walkie, KHOL News. Yellowstone National Park has been the site of one of the most detailed studies of a large carnivore in the world since wolves were reintroduced there in 1995. That research was put at risk this winter after Montana and Idaho loosened hunting regulations for the animals, resulting in the killings of at least 25 wolves just outside of the park's boundaries, where there used to be a buffer zone. KHOL's Kyle Mackey spoke to reporter Mike Koshmerl to learn more. His recent study for the nonprofit publication Wildfile is called Yellowstone Wolf Hunt Altered Behavior Damaged Research. Mike, thank you so much for joining us today on KHOL. Hey, Kyle, I'm uh, happy to join you too. In your story, there are some pretty uh, profound impacts that have been observed by biologists on how these killings have affected packs. What are some of those impacts that you found about? So the primary National Park Service person I interviewed for this story, Doug Smith, he's the senior wildlife biologist there. And he uh, kind of walked me through what happened with some of the packs. Uh, the, the most direct effect is a pack was eliminated, essentially. Not, not It's not necessarily that all of its members were shot and killed, but enough of them were shot and killed where the rest of the pack just kind of like dissolved and the wolves dispersed across the landscape. That pack is called uh, the Phantom Lake Pack, and 
they blocked this other pack called the Junction Butte Pack that is probably the most visible wolf pack in Yellowstone um, from leaving the park. So like once their territory was vacated, then all of a sudden the Junction Butte Pack like had kind of like a runway to get out of the park. And then that pack was the the most heavily hit. I think eight of its members um, were killed by hunters and trappers outside the park in Montana legally. But a big distinction that Doug Smith pointed out to me um, is that soon Yellowstone will release like a wolf monitoring report. They put it out every year and the numbers might look very similar to last year. You know, a hundred, low hundred something wolves that dwell in the park. Uh, And the reason for that, or one potential reason for that is because this hunting has like stimulated reproduction. And so it's kind of like a compensatory reaction um, that is just part of wolf biology, where if you kill a bunch, they respond by breeding more. So I, I heard that there had been two packs where they actually saw four females, different females breeding. So you could see a number of litters in a couple packs on the Northern range where the hunting pressure was the ha- highest uh, end up producing litters and uh, you could basically the population will rebound might even exceed where it was um, last year despite a record high number of uh, park wolves being killed. Yeah that was one of the most interesting parts of your story to me and you can almost hear the counter argument of maybe are these killings potentially a good thing if they're sparking more wolves to reproduce so the park services reaction to that is like they're just concerned that the public will see that and just think well what's the big deal but a distinction that they pointed out or doug smith pointed out to me is that their whole intent trickles down from the organic act the legislation that created the national park service is to have natural processes um, rule the day and so the idea that you have like humans stimulating reproduction and wolf numbers rebound, that doesn't square with like the mission of the park service. So even though numerically it might look fine in their point of view, they're not doing their job if that's the outcome. Before I let you go, I just wanted to ask you kind of a more philosophical question about wolves. We were able to interview an author a few years ago at KHL. Her name's Philippa Forrester, and she wrote a book called On the Trail of Wolves. And she wrote about how wolves have become like this bellwether political issue. I wonder why you think that is, that wolves have become just so polarized. (laughs) I grew up in Minnesota where we always had wolves. The wolves were never eradicated. And it's certainly still a divisive species. But here, there was a decades-long fight to bring back a species that people's grandfather eradicated. Uh, And, you know, there's a lot of federal, anti-federal government sentiment in the West. And so here's the federal government, like shoving a controversial large carnivore down the throats of people who didn't want them. So it almost like makes sense to me that there are very strong attitudes against wolves. And then on the other side of it, people love wolves. You know, they're a social animal. They're beautiful. You know, some some Yellowstone wolves, you know, when when they're killed, uh, it incites outrage around the world. And Google Yellowstone wolves and you'll see there's a lot of books that have been written over the years. Uh, There's a lot of people that uh, have made wolf watching a huge part of their life. 
so yeah, you just have two kind of diametrically opposed camps. And um, maybe in many decades that will fade, but in the meantime, wolf management is a hot issue. <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll talk to you again about it soon on KHL. Thank you again, Mike, for taking the time to chat with us today. Of course. Thanks, Kyle. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL. I'm News Director Kyle Mackey, and this is our weekly podcast featuring reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop every Friday on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Next, veteran ski journalist Heather Hansman's recent book, Powder Days, explores the history of skiing and the modern heart of ski bum culture. K-12's Emily Cohen spoke with Hansman about the book, as well as the future of the ski industry and ski towns. Great to speak with you today, Heather. Powder Days really resonated with me, and I imagine it will for a lot of our listeners as well. It in some ways reminded me of a ski bum version of Billionaire Wilderness, in that it was fused with a sociological and also anthropological analysis of this very particular and kind of peculiar world that we inhabit. I'm curious how that analogy lands. I think that idea of, okay, I'm seeing this kind of social problem or I'm seeing a a microcosm of a community and a lifestyle change and I want to investigate what the backstory is there and what's going on and how is this feeling that I'm having based in reality? What are the facts? So I think that idea of like, how do you kind of look at this subculture and unpack it is something that he does really well as a sociologist um, and a social scientist and was something that I was kind of sneakily trying to get into too. One of the, I guess, overarching sentiments that I had when reading Powder Days was a sadness. These are isolated places. They're hard places to leverage stability. Many people are just trying to hold on They're holding on to this idea of snow in a world of climate change, to limited and often subpar housing. They're holding on to this idea of youth. Is sadness a fair assessment? Yeah, I think if there hadn't been that level of sadness in it or that level of kind of there's like an ache almost in it, it would have been a really different book. And I don't think it would have felt true to what I saw on the ground. Is this dream of the ski town life really possible? I go back to Jackson and also Aspen a lot as these kind of like way out of, ahead of the the problems of is this thing feasible? Who gets to be a part of it? Are we hollowing out these places that we love and making them, you know, like not real places anymore? And I think it is, I think part of why this is so interesting to me is that it's not necessarily just a ski town thing that, you know, like these, the issues are so aggravated because your wealth disparity and like the base wage and what people can actually make in these towns is so skewed that people who can come in from the outside don't have to necessarily play within that system. And that's gotten even worse in COVID. But I think this is, this isn't something that's just happening in mountain towns. I think this is sort of like a big society ride. What are we going to do about it? What happens when the pieces kind of start, the, the wheels start to fall off? How did you eventually leave the ski town world? <laughs> I guess the, the simple answer to that is that I got hurt and I had been working seasonal jobs. I was working on the mountain in the winter and in restaurants and gear shops. I was working as a guide in the summer. Um, and I ended up blowing my shoulder kayaking and kind of had this 
perhaps I had been sort of wrestling with that question, even, you know, I was in my kind of mid twenties of whether I could stay and make it work and what my life would have, was going to look like. I kind of got freaked out by this idea of my life and my livelihood, depending on my body and my body being pretty fragile. And so I, you know, washed out. I was living in Colorado and mountains there. And I went back to grad school to be a journalist, which is another totally stable, <laughs> financially lucrative way to, way to go about things. You talk a lot about this contrast between skiing's gritty past, you know, it's founded by rebels and outsiders, and then it's glossy future. And you use that phrase, glossy future. What is there to be hopeful about? I would love a less glossy future of skiing in a lot of ways. And I think in doing the reporting, a lot of the places that seemed like they were doing, maybe not a lot, but some of the places that seemed like they were doing well and had kind of figured out a sustainable balance of still being affordable, still being able to open the doors, not being overrun, um, were places like Bridger Bowl, outside of Bozeman, or Mad River Glen in Vermont that are co-op owned and that aren't beholden or not responsible to shareholders or a bigger company or something like that. So I think there is some level of what is the economic sustainability of skiing as a business that is going to come to play. And that's really hard. You know, skiing is not, if you're a small ski hill and especially in a place that's sort of climatically vulnerable, it is a really hard business to keep going. It was fun to recognize some local names in the book, folks like Betty Wilson, one of the founders of the so-called Jackson Hole Air Force. Who are you writing this book for? That was one of the things that was scary about it is I wanted it to be accessible. Like I didn't want it to be like too bro or too insider-y, but I also wanted it to resonate for people like Benny. And so it was like a hard line to, to try and walk. Well, congratulations again on the publication of Powder Days. And for folks interested in reading the book, it is at the library because I finally returned my long overdue copy. Thank you again for joining me today for KHOL. Jackson Hole Community Radio, I'm Emily Cohen. Our last conversation today is a look behind the scenes of our new limited podcast series with Steo called Facets, Voices of the Mountain Life. In five episodes, Facets explores the passions, tensions, and healing that people find while living in a mountain town. The second episode is called Preserving a Teton Icon, and it was reported and produced by Cage Wells' Will Walkie, who sat down to chat about his reporting process with our music and community affairs director, Jack Catlin. Their conversation was recorded live in the KHOL studios earlier this month. A small population of bighorn sheep persists in the Teton Range during the winter under impossible conditions, often above 10,000 feet. An effort to conserve the herd is pitting some skiers against conservationists in emotional public discourse. Joining me right now in the KHOL studios is KHOL's own Will Walkie, who reported and produced the episode. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us, Will. It's a pleasure to be here, Jack. Thanks for having me on. So, Will, how did you first get involved with this story? So, like so many stories these days in journalism, it actually started through social media and actually Instagram. 
I want to give a quick shout out to my friend Henry Dodge, who actually pointed me to this story first. And it was a post from a backcountry skier basically saying, big photo of the Tetons with a big closed sign in front of it. Basically talking about this proposal that's been happening through Grand Teton National Park and a few other public lands organizations, basically to close 21,000 acres. This is a huge swath of land in the Teton Range in the winter in order to protect this small herd of bighorn sheep. For a lot of reasons, people care about this in terms of wildlife conservation. The skiing community also cares about this because they like to be able to go where they want in the Tetons. It's one of the best parts about living in Jackson Hole. And so I dug a little deeper, learned about the biology behind this, some of the politics behind this decision, and overall why this has been an effort that's been going on for decades and why people want to try and protect the sheep and also why these closures might help. So who did you talk to on either side of the issue? So the final, you know, the episode that's out today, Facets, you know, there's going to be three main characters that you sort of hear. One is Michael Whitfield, who is sort of the original modern day student of the sheep. You know, he started tracking sheep back when there was really no GPS. At the time, they were actually thought to be extinct in the Tetons because no one could really get up that high. This was in the late 70s and early 80s. And he would go out there basically total mountain man by himself for 10 days at a time, 80 pound instruments on his back tracking the sheep, even tracking as far back as before white settlement, back when Native Americans were the only folks in the Tetons, there's evidence of them interacting with sheep. So he's one of the main characters. The next is sort of the modern biology student. Her name's Allie Cordemont, currently works for the Wyoming Game and Fish Department. In 2014, she did a master's thesis where she actually tracked backcountry skiers, tracking their movements throughout the Tetons. They were voluntarily putting GPS trackers on themselves and then collaring sheep, looking for correlations and looking for ways that skiers and sheep were impacted. What she found is that bighorn sheep, when humans are sort of there, even if they're not hunting them, threatening them, you know, sheep are super skittish and perceive humans as a threat. So they're burning energy in an already really remote landscape. And so she found that basically humans are negatively impacting sheep when they're in the backcountry. And then the final main character is Mark Smiley. He's a backcountry guide and he's been skeptical about the proposed closures for honestly a really good reason, which is that he loves public lands. And At the end of the day, he is looking for reasons to not have to do the closures, but he's also really someone that cares a lot about this environment in Jackson Hole. And so I think that he was a really interesting case study in terms of how the ski community is sort of reacting to these proposed closures, which I think anyone that has been out there in the backcountry knows why this is something that would impact them and why this is something that they want to learn more about. Well, anything else you'd like to touch on? For me personally, this is my first podcast episode I've ever gotten to do. It's 29 minutes. You know, this was a long, drawn out process. I'm really hoping to hear feedback, not only from folks that care about this in the ski community, biology community, but also just folks in Jackson who like this unique place. You know, this is a story in many ways about our public lands. Who are our public lands for? How do we interact with them? And what does it mean to preserve public lands for future generations? Also, where do wildlife go into play? And and in the case of the bighorn sheep, it's getting to the point where maybe if humans keep doing what we keep doing, this population of bighorn sheep might go extinct. And there are so many other reasons for that. You know, it's not just the backcountry skiers, it's development in Jackson Hole, it's air noise pollution, it's all these other things. But at the end of the day, I think it's a really interesting case study. And, you know, one line that was in the preview for the episode and that I keep coming back to is, if we can't solve an issue like this in Jackson Hole, 
where else can we do it? Because we live in one of the most unique ecosystems in the country on the doorstep of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. There's bears, there's bison, you know, there's really no more unique place in the lower 48. And elsewhere in the country, we've just seen populations of animals decline so much from human development. And any biologist that you talk to is very pessimistic that we can try and turn this around where animals are going to start to recover. Maybe in Jackson Hole with this tiny population of sheep, we can actually do it if there's some collaboration. And, you know, I'm optimistic that we can get this done. And it was exciting to report. Yeah, very interesting. Big, big issue here. So everyone encourage you to check that out. You can listen to Facets on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We also have links on our website, 891khwell.org. You can find it on sto.com. The next episode airs Friday, April 29th. I'm Jack Hatlin, and this is KHOL Jackson. Now for the weekly news roundup. Here are the headlines you might have missed this past week. The story of the Jackson Hole real estate market continues to be skyrocketing demand and very limited supply, according to a recently released report from Sotheby's. Brett McPeak has worked as a realtor in Teton County since the 1990s, and he says the median home sale price in the first three months of this year was over $4 million for the first time. The average home price on the market as of April 1st was almost $6 million. That's a pretty elite person that can afford a $6 million house. McPeak also says things are moving so fast that many properties aren't even hitting Zillow. The average condo is now off the market in 80 days, 15 days quicker than just a year ago. These record-breaking dollar volumes are occurring despite fewer transactions, and McPeak says basically everyone during the pandemic in Jackson Hole that wanted to sell their property essentially already has. I think if you start to look at the macro numbers for the end of 2022, it's not going to be another record year because we just don't have anything for people to buy. And that's also true in Star Valley. It's also true in Victor and Drake's. McPeak encourages folks with local jobs and below market rate incomes to look into their housing options through government organizations and deed restrictions. He also recognizes that that's a major challenge and that a lot of luck and patience needs to be involved, as a recent study found that the region is short more than 5,000 homes for the local workforce. Wyoming snowpack statewide is at nearly 100% of median after a wet April. The local Snake Basin is up to 89% of median from about 75% two weeks ago. And with more precipitation in the forecast for the next 5 to 10 days, Wyoming hydrologist Jim Fahey of the Natural Resources Conservation Service says that bodes well for the rest of the water year. It was looking pretty dire um, coming into April, um, but now it's, you know, we're still you know, below where we should be. But it's, you know, it's a better story now. Hopefully we can continue the momentum. (laughs) Fahey also says the extra moisture might help efforts to fill Jackson Lake, but there's still a long way to go. Local candidates are lining up to run for various open positions in town, county, and state government. Realtor Devin Veeman is throwing her hat in the ring for the Jackson Town Council after she lost narrowly in 2020. 
Vice Mayor Arn Jorgensen has indicated that he'll run again, according to the Jackson Hole News and Guide, but the other incumbent, Jonathan Schechter, is still undecided. Former head of the Jackson Hole Chamber of Commerce Steve Dewar, a Republican, announced this week that he'll challenge Democratic State Senator Mike Garou for his spot in Cheyenne. And Democrat House member Mike Yin of Jackson kicked off his re-election bid with an announcement Monday. Another major Jackson Hole seat, vacated by Andy Schwartz, is up for grabs as Republican Paul Vogelheim, formerly of the Teton County Commission, announced his campaign last week. The filing deadline for this year's election season is May 27th. That's it for today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is by the local band Strombucket. Just a reminder that you can help us spread the word about Jackson Unpacked and about Facets by leaving a rating and review for the shows in Apple Podcasts. I'm Kyle Mackey, and this is KHOL Jackson.